You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Trista Holweck. Trista is a former teacher, vice principal, and school district consultant. She's director of the ARC Education Program and co principal investigator of the Canadian Playful Schools Network, funded by the Lego Foundation in the University of Ottawa. Her research has examined teacher induction, mentoring, and coaching programs. And she's also researched, published and consulted about restorative justice, professional learning, teacher evaluation and educational change. Trista received her doctorate from the University of Ottawa and we've done quite a lot of work and presenting and writing together. So welcome, Trista. Thanks, Deb. I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) Let's start the conversation. And I wanted to start with something that's probably been forefront of both of our minds for a little while in some of the work that we've been doing. Well, one way that you describe yourself is as a pracademic who integrates the worlds of research, policy and practice. And, you know, as your bio indicates, you're involved in a diverse range of work with a diverse range of people. And I'm interested in a couple of things there. One is, what would you say is a driver for that work in all those different places? Is there a thread or through line there? And also, how do you actually go about integrating, I don't know, maybe you don't go about integrating, but working in those multiple roles and multiple spaces? Yeah, great question. And I know pracademia and what that means is really of interest to us. And I think for me, it really is that sense of uh, community and belonging that I seek. Um, And so I'm thrilled to have people join me (laughs) wrestling with this term and what that means. Yeah, what is the through line? And I think if I look back in my career, I, I often wonder like how all these tangents and different roles are integrated. And then somehow it surprises me when my expertise from one area is very useful in another space. So I guess I have to have trust that sometimes these different avenues will align. But I think the through line really for me is, is it making a difference to teach to teachers and to students? And so always, it's not getting too far away from the impact on what this does for schools and schooling and thinking about leadership and teaching and learning and leading in that sense, for sure. Like it, that's the through line for me, um, is that focus and, and staying grounded. And so I think that pracademia space is always making sure that I'm working closely with teachers and leaders so that I understand the work that I'm researching or referencing in a way that really um, has an impact on the classroom or a school, for example. And and the second part of the question really is Mm. around that identity piece. Um, I think, you know, the driver and and the different elements and how do you balance it depends on who you ask. Some people may think I balance it well, but perhaps others uh, who know me really well see how it's always a juggle. And I guess part of it is, I never want to miss an opportunity for something that I just don't know might open up a space to help me learn. So it's always about my growth and learning that drives and also helping others do really good work um, and more great work. And I think I'm just so lucky to be able to learn with and from so many people in these different spaces. So it's about your own learning, but about collaborating with others to make a positive difference for teachers and students. And it was interesting that you just made a comment about never wanting to miss an opportunity. Do you say no to things? It's uh, That's a great question. <laughs> Do I? I'm learning to. 
Should I do it more often? Yes. But sometimes uh, if I look back on some of the avenues, those yeses led me into really interesting spaces I never could have predicted. And so it's, it's better understanding. And, you know, as I head towards 50, I start thinking perhaps now's the time to be really thinking a little bit more about boundaries and what's important and remembering, you know, my family is really important and how to make sure that that balance is best. I don't think there is a possibility for that, but that at least that I'm aligned for myself and what's important. Mm, And intentional. So we wrote a paper with Paul Campbell for the Journal of Professional Capital and Community about defining pracademia. And we, in that paper, define the pracademic as an individual who spans the worlds of academia and practice. And pracademia is the kind of space occupied by those interacting within, between and beyond the domains for practice and academia. And we include that policy domain in there as well. And we talk a little bit about how that's for us about both and thinking rather than an either or binary. So there's that inclusive and and, and, and aspect of it. And you talked a little bit just then about some of the benefits and maybe problems or pitfalls. So the benefits of the growth that you get and uh, making a difference and ending up in places that you didn't expect, but also some of the problems that you might come across, like the competing demands or having a lot on your plate, lots of balls spinning at the same time. So I wonder if you can talk a bit more about what you've observed or experienced about what are the benefits and problems do you think there might be about being someone who's in that space between and across research and academia in education. Yeah, I, and I love the the non-binary approach that we're really thinking about, that the both and, um, and that the opportunities that I think Pracademia offers the educational field, um, that we have this opportunity for people who do our boundary spanners, who sit in different areas, and that if we could collaborate more, just think of what we can what we can come up with together. I think that's it, there's so much potential here for us. Yeah, so some of the opportunities really have been that you can really get a sense of of the action and that it's options and career options that uh, are unexpected, really interesting projects like the one I hope we'll talk about today about the Canadian Playful Schools Network, just really being able to do something innovative and new. So there's so many opportunities that have been afforded because of that experience in both. And the idea of credibility and legitimacy is something I really wrestle with. So credibility to the different groups, academia and practice, defined by whom? You know, do I say I'm a I'm credible or do I actually have to have the credibility and how does that work? Who, who decides that I have credibility? So just making sure that, that it's listening, working with and from folk as well. But the problems also exist. You know, I feel the work in Pracademia is often undervalued, that it's a lot of a free labor. So, you know, when we write that paper together, we did it all on our own time, balancing multiple time zones. It was such a great experience. And I, I really am so grateful to be able to work with you and Paul and have developed really powerful pre- friendships from that work. But it's also on top of all the other work. So it's con- that constant push and pull doing things I love and I'm inspired and excited by, but it comes at a cost. So I guess the question for me is, you know, Will there be a space that's valued? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not. I never know where I fit. I think that's sort of where I I live. I don't quite fit into any of these spaces. So perhaps that's my drive is to find a space <laughs> with others who maybe feel the same, and that we can we can make some difference and together. 
Yeah, there's some really interesting reflections there about that. You know, those when we have collaborated, it's your early mornings, our late nights is when that tends to work. Uh, we've done a symposia online together where one of us is like literally waking up in the pitch darkness in the middle of the night. And as you say, often free. So you do have to have those internal drivers that are like, this work is important. Uh, there's there's a, a, a greater purpose here for doing this, I think, definitely. And a lot of the things that you've talked about already are, are about learning, collaboration and what your PhD was on and a lot of work that you've done is around mentoring and coaching, yeah. uh, which is another uh, tangent, I suppose, in that collaborative uh, professional learning space. And I'm wondering if you can start by talking with that work about what how you see what's a mentor, what's a coach. And there's another term that you use in your writing, which I hadn't come across elsewhere, which is the mentor coach, mm-hmm. uh, which I find <laughs> sort of blows my brain a bit because I don't quite know what that means. So if you could talk about the differences between those things and why you think that's an important space for education. I mean, it's a contested space, the defining mentoring and coaching, and there's overlapping, there is conflicting definitional understandings of those terms. Um, and so the work that I, I do and have done at uh, the Western Quebec School Board in the province of Quebec and the English educational community really came from a, a desire to support teachers. So we know that all teachers who come into the system And no matter your career level, so beginning teacher to experienced teacher, I think we all need to be well held, that we need to have support and it has to be growth oriented because I think that really does impact our students because I think if teachers have solid, you know, professional learning and and sense of well-being that trickles down to our students who also then have that um, that impact, right? And so the teacher connection to students is so important. So I'm really focused on the teachers. And when we were beginning this work um, in teacher induction, we started to think about, okay, is it a mentoring program? Is it a coaching program? What is it? Um, and so we started by defining the terms. And so the work that I did in my PhD was a case study of a teacher induction program um, in my school board. And where we started um, as the coordinator of the program it started with helping us define the terms ourselves because there were so many different ways to understand it. And we see them as two distinct roles, like mentoring is different from coaching. But when we're talking about teacher induction, you know, it's very fluid. So that's why I introduced the Mobius strip, which is not new to me. That's I borrowed it from other um, folk who've been doing great work like Bloom and the Shannon Morens. But the idea of this fluid stance that shifts and that it's really about being attuned to the person you're working with. Do they need a mentor in this moment? Do they need a coach? But what you do need to know is what the difference is and so how to respond. And I see mentoring really is that a more experienced person. Often we choose our own mentors. It's long term. You have mentors for life. People are unexpected mentors. Um, and it, it's giving advice. It's supporting. It's advocating. Um, it's championing. It's, you know, providing chocolate and a hug if things are not going well. Um, but a coach to me is quite different. It's, it has more of a structure to it. It's asking questions. It's really unleashing the potential in others, helping them solve their own, uh, solving the answers to their own questions. Um, but you need time to learn how to do that, to not just, I'll help you. I know exactly what to do. Here it is. I see that as a mentor, useful at times. We don't need people to struggle too long in some spaces. But I think coaching really helps you solve your own problems. And that is really important also for people in their early career, knowing that they have the, 
the competence and the confidence to to solve their own problems because they're not always going to have that colleague um, guiding them. So we use the term mentor coaching really to signal that both are important, but they're different. And so that that was really the genesis of, of the term mentor coaching. And so we call all of our mentor coaches that um, who work in a teaching fellowship. So we call all our early career teachers teaching fellows to signal again that we all it's reciprocal learning. We all have something to give in this fellowship process. So hopefully that helps in mm. terms of the terminology. Yes, that's really clarified it for me. So there's sort of that underlying principle about we're all learners, no matter how experienced we are, no matter how expert, no matter how fantastic, there's that that sense of growth being needed and learning t- to happen. But the mentor coach, I was thinking, is this a combination? But no, it's an indication of that the Moby strip is the never ending continuum where you move back and forth depending on the person in the moment. So it really means that the person who might be what you'd term a mentor coach would need to have a really clear idea of what mentoring and coaching are and to move intentionally exactly. into the space that they think is relevant to that person at any given time. Yeah, and what we know like from the research that I did because I actually looked at the experienced teachers' experience as mentor coaches. You know, what why do people do that work? It's usually extra. It's not a part of their workload. It is an opportunity to connect with new people and they did it for many different reasons. But it takes a long time to understand those two different stances um, and also to to get better as a coach in particular was, was something it took about three years that we saw. Um, but the impact was huge because not everybody wants to move into a different leadership role. And I see, I see the mentor coach role as an important leadership role within a school and a system and also a way to really uh, make change in the school, school system. What sort of impacts did you see? So we saw impacts in terms of their own professional practice. You know, they learned a ton from their colleague um, who they're working with, who sometimes came straight out of teacher education, maybe had different experience in different countries. You know, so that's so much expertise that they can get as well. When you're talking about teaching practice all the time, you think about your own. So it really enhanced their own professional reflection on their practice. So often they talked about how their own practice really improved during the time working with their teaching fellow. I saw it around for some people, it was really making a change in the school. They saw this possibility to really think about, you know, how we treat students, um, how we support differentiation was an opportunity to grow that in their school by taking on and supporting new people. Uh, So a a little bit of maybe activism against the status quo some people saw it as an opportunity to to shake things up a little bit and and uh, and you know also to inspire some also talked about having sustained practices so and succession plans so they knew that all of the things that they had learned during their 25 years they could work with someone and so there's that historical knowledge gets passed on mm-hmm. um, legacy so, legacy work for sure and so just there's so many reasons and others you know because they really want to build great new relationships and they got a friend out of it or a longtime partner who would end up being you know a colleague uh, or even their leader at some point you never know so it's just people entered for lots of different reasons and got lots of benefits themselves on their practice or their own professional well-being 
That really resonates with the research that I did around coaching as well. I mean, when I think about why you would bring in a coaching um, professional learning or coaching types of talk into an organisation, it's for me because you want to change the way we talk around here, what Rachel Lofthouse might call that semantic space, the space in which like how do people speak to each other, how do we speak with parents, how do teachers speak with one another, Uh, how do they reflect on their own practice, What what sort of language are students using. But then the side effects of that are often that there's so much reward for the person doing the coaching because, as you say, they're observing teachers, they're having professional conversations that are robust and interesting, they're doing really active listening with people. So actually what you're what often starts as being an intervention where you're trying to change others maybe or the school actually ends up changing those people who are involved in the actual kind of coaching intervention or however you might put that. Yeah, and I love how people often talked about some of the my participants in the study talked about how it changed their family lives, like how they talked with other adults. <laughs> it changed um, for those of them who are going into leadership positions, having a chance to understand how to give and receive feedback, how to listen really well was super valuable for their own professional growth. And, you know, it's, it's really about, we call it growing the top. So we often spend a lot of time thinking Thinking about people coming in and new, and in particular in our case, we have a real challenge with teacher retention and attrition for a number of reasons. But we this gives an opportunity to really focus on those with more experience um, and keeping them growing. Um, and so, and I guess it all boils down to like the relational aspect is super important to me. Like how we are in a school with one another matters. And so work we can do together to develop that and um, improve it, it, it's really important, even though it is expensive. Like these programs are expensive, but I think 100% worth it um, if you're willing to, you know, wait, because it does take time to get better and to, to change and shift. And it allows people to have a sort of meta understanding of the kind of conversations that they might want to have to say, hey, Trista, do you know what I need right now is a coaching conversation. I need you to listen and help me work through this. Or what I need, don't please don't coach me. I need some advice. I'm really stuck, you know. So, so you can actually start to be really clear about the kinds of conversations that you might have and then the kind of thing that you might be asking for as well. Exactly. And it, I love like the also the intentionality when you get better at knowing the two roles. You know, okay, if I ask a question right now, this is not what this is not going to end well. <laughs> so you know, like being non both and is a really important component. So we're not talking only about sticking. Um, sometimes I think we understand in the coaching field, coaching to be one way. And, I, and I, it's causing a lot of problems as we look in um, across what's happening in implementation in different spaces. But so thinking both and it has to be responsive. It has to be aligned and attuned to the people that you're working with. So the mentor coach concept is almost permission to or acknowledgement of the fact that there are different needs in different times and different conversations for different people. And respect of per- the professionalism of the people in the role, their professional judgment. So, you know, there's no one way to do something, um, to do it, uh, that we trust that you'll figure this out together. So you've talked about teacher professional trust. You've talked about retention and attrition. You've talked about, you mentioned earlier, teacher wellbeing. And I read with interest something that you wrote. So you're a project director of ARC, the Atlantic Rim Collaboratory, which is a collective that has the, the modest aim of promoting improvement, innovation and inclusion in schools and also society. Uh, you know, so just no a, biggie. Just, yeah, just, 
<laughs> and so in a piece you wrote, wrote for ARC with Mariana Dominguez, you argue that there needs to be greater trust, transparency and communication between the government and educators and I think also vice versa, educators and the government, and that systems need to provide resources, funding, support, professional learning and appropriate salaries for teachers. That's an interesting one for us in Australia at the moment. I mean, mentoring and coaching have also been shown to be able to have an impact on teacher wellbeing. Can you talk a little bit about what does it look like when teachers are adequately supported and their professionalism and their wellbeing are valued? What do you think that looks like? It looks like thriving schools. It could look like flourishing schools. It looks like people who are, you know, happy to be at work and also feel supported. It looks like when there are challenges, they know it's going to be solved together. Like So it's very open when there is an issue because there's a sense that it's, we'll get through this together. And I, and I think it looks like students who are doing really incredible work as well because they're thriving in classrooms that have really innovative practice and teachers who are well supported, parents who are part of the community. Like I think it's really about the relationship of all and and the work that we try to do in ARC is thinking about how do we bring those conversations to policymakers so that they understand what's happening in classrooms, that they can drive and lead uh, the, the next steps without altering like the impact on, on teachers. And yes, I, I watch with interest what's happening in Australia, but it's happening everywhere. Um, I think we're shifting into, you know, that worry about accountability and learning loss narrative. You know, what does that do for the professional knowledge of teachers. And during the pandemic, I felt um, in some places, it was interesting to watch that teachers had a chance to sort of thrive and lead the way and leaders, school leaders and others. It was really, you know, know the, the directives. You can't break out of the box. You've got to do it this way. And so there's just a, such a tension right now. And I'm always so hopeful of the opportunities moving forward, but also deeply concerned about where I think it could go. I'm um, reflecting on the pandemic. You're, we um, actually connected our children during the early days of the 2020 lockdowns as pen pals, Can Canada to Australia. Uh, and I remember your kids sharing, uh, you know, their pandemic pet and ice hockey and my children sharing, you know, surf club on the beach and, and our pandemic uh, rescue pet. Uh, but how do you think the experience of the pandemic has changed teaching, learning or schooling education? Like you said, there's a lot of tensions that have arisen, obviously inequities, issues with teacher wellbeing and retention. I don't know if you want to take this down a, a dark and despairing route or, or look for positive and hopeful possibilities, but where do you think we're at now, like quite a long time into the pandemic? So one of the interesting parts of the work I get to do is it's, you know, all sorts of different options. And so one of the research projects that I was leading happened actually in December 2020. Um, I was hired to lead a research to practice uh, project for the Leadership Committee for English Education in Quebec, so the LCEEQ. And um, we called it the accompaniment project. So just to throw another babble term into the mix, but I really think it's important because the accompaniment idea is about how do we accompany one another? How do we have collective mobilization? How are we growth oriented? How do we join someone on their journey, not by pushing from behind or pulling from in front, but really being with someone, but there's movement forward. So the accompaniment lens that we use is important. And where I'm going with this, <laughs> to answer your question, is during the pandemic, we did a needs assessment. So we launched the study for the first phase, uh, which is a, to see what was going on for educators, teachers, directors, consultants, and administrators. So we had four groups. Um, and we offered in French and English, um, and we had 504 respondents in June of 2020. 
1991. I'm just trying to, even my dates are all mixed up. Okay. Yeah. So it was right in the heart of what was, of, of the pandemic. So we got a bit of a snapshot as to what was going on and how hard it really was. Um, some good news, because you asked for not just the deep and despairing, is that most of the respondents really enjoy their job. They, they love, you know, they enjoy teaching, they enjoy leading, um, working in the system. But there's some very big tensions that are coming up that have already been there, were, were exacerbated during the pandemic. Um, and so there was a bit of a threat around competence and confidence in the work, um, feeling, you know, directives didn't make sense, but they needed to respond. Um, high number were considering leaving the profession. So that was very worrying. And these were all experienced teachers, not just new teachers to the system. So that's particularly worrying when we talk about growth of a system and legacy you know, if we lose the people who are really willing to do a questionnaire, for one thing, we know those are probably our highly motivated and engaged folk. And if they're considering leaving, that, that's that's super worrisome to us. So the realities of that. But we also saw that there were some innovative elements that came out. You know, they talked about increased collaboration, more access to professional learning and development that was had more agency. Like they could choose because nobody had a direction yet about what you do during pandemic teaching and learning. So there's some freedom for them to explore. Mm. The consultants felt that their work was actually more important because people were reaching out. So they were able to collaborate more directly. For us, travel didn't impact. You know, people were able to do professional learning from home. So they didn't have to go into work to do it. So these are really positives. Staff meetings were shorter and online. It was noted as a positive and it, it, you know, so there were some moments of innovation that came out of it and that, that was important, but we did, we did see uh, some massive tensions when it came to how uh, the leaders were leading in schools during this time, whether teachers had autonomy to lead um, and, and also just concern, really big concern for the well-being of not only the students, but the staff. Mm. And I've seen some of your writing that engages with Martin Seligman's PERMA framework, which yeah. I also try and sort of think about when I think about staff wellbeing in my own school and in my own job. And, and his framework's really around a way of thinking about wellbeing that encompasses more than what you might consider as happiness or yoga on a Friday or those oh kind of um, <laughs> bolt-on kind of well-being initiatives, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with those that it's nice to have maybe, but he talks about positive emotion, engagement, positive relationships, meaning and accomplishment, which is interesting. You talk about accompaniment and you've talked quite a lot about community, identity, belonging. Uh, for me, that sense of meaning is really important, but teachers can't be driven by meaning alone. Uh, There needs to be some other supports and resourcing and funding and so on behind that. So are there things that you see schools or systems doing that are are good in this space, in the wellbeing space of, of supporting, retaining, inspiring teachers? Yeah, absolutely. I think when teachers have a chance to make decisions for the school and their students, um, when there's a collective sense of these are our students, not just my students in my class, but I actually, we all have a role to play. Um, so that collective efficacy element and in, in we believe we can make a difference um, in the lives of and the experience of our children. Um, and when leaders sort of unleash that potential in others, um, allow for joint decision-making, really minimize the, like the, there's a lack of alignment in a lot of initiatives, like far too many initiatives. (laughs) And people are like, well, I don't even know, or this too shall pass. 
how do we align them? How do we really be thinking about what our aim for our school is? Do teachers have a say in that? Like who, how are people given leadership opportunities and, you know, really directing and supporting and having conversations around that. So when, when you see that and it works well, you can see how important that is um, and the impact it is for, for staff and students. Um, I think the concern has been that there's been a big d- disconnect. I mean, it's pretty obvious I sit in the relational space um, that that drives me. Um, and, uh, you know, so the PERMA framework makes sense. But I think, yeah, nothing wrong with yoga. But if we keep looking at how the structures actually make teachers ill, so if we're thinking about ill-being, not well-being, mm-hmm. you know, no amount of like lunchtime yoga is going to help. People really want a little more autonomy and agency. They want more opportunities to collaborate on in their own way. They want time and space to do that. And that, that, and that I think, fosters respect always. So rather than clamping down on, on folk, but like let it, listening and hearing how we can move together. Because we don't know. We don't have the answers. But I think being able to voice our concerns is really important. I'm hearing lots there from you, you know, voice and autonomy, joint work, collective efficacy, uh, respect and trust. And I'm throwing in all t- the buzzwords today. Oops. T- time and space is really interesting because you mentioned before that, you know, a mentoring or coaching program costs and anything where you give teachers more time costs. Uh, and if you want to take anything off someone's plate, often in a school, someone has to be doing that. So mm-hmm. there's a really interesting, I think, tension at the moment between governments who don't necessarily want to spend more in education and the fact that there are workloads that are feeling unsustainable for the teaching workforce. So it's an interesting time, but I think, you know, the pandemic did also show that teaching is a really important profession. Uh, schools are places, as you say, of relationships, community belonging, as well as of learning and so on. So uh, I think there's there's definitely some sense of urgency around those things. That's why we need the policymakers in the room as well. So they can't be disconnected. We need ways to communicate um, that provide both and thinking. Because they're, you know, we have budgets and we have um, aspects that we need to respond to as leaders. So where are the possibilities uh, and innovative options within that that we can try out? I mean, and there are, and I think that sense of agency is so important that you feel that you, you understand, we all understand that that it, there's not going to be a, a massive influx of money in the system. But I think that sometimes the decisions that are made could can be wasteful. They're not actually giving um, the most positive movement that we could do. So, so how do? But who is making those decisions? That's why I think when we look at ARC, we really try to bring in unions and associations and government, and we can really think about what's happening in schools, so that when decisions are made, it, it feels like there has been some consultation around that. And if we do move towards something that is around innovation, playfulness, optimism, mm-hmm. maybe, um, yeah. One of your recent ventures is as a researcher for the newly established Canadian Playful Schools Network, which is funded by a grant from the Lego Foundation, which I assume has something to do with play. Uh, And so as I understand it, the network aims to engage students in learning through play in grades four to eight, and that the research is investigating student engagement and wellbeing, especially maybe for those students who are traditionally marginalised by schooling systems, so what that might mean for them or what it could offer them. So that's all I know. I'd love for you to um, Mm. tell me more. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's it's a very small project in terms of time, short, short maybe. So it's 18 months. So we're wrapping this phase up by June 2023. So it's very fast moving, um, and uh, and it's 
in both English and French. So the Réseau Canadien des Écoles Ludiques, so that we have our two Canadian Playful Schools Network. And so we're simultaneously supporting the English school boards as well as the French school boards across seven provinces um, at this phase. Um, and what really gets me excited about this is understanding what learning through play looks like. I think we have some great examples in the early years, like um, uh, like kindergarten and play is play-based in many of our, our provinces. And we have preschool play-based, but where things get a little trickier and being a middle school teacher, I'm always interested in this, is those grades of four to eight. You know, when like, what does learning through play look like in that space? And again, for me, what's exciting about this project is our aim is to bring teams of teachers, so three to four teachers with their school leader, because we want the conversation to be happening in the school, together to learn with and from one another. Like we really want to see what is going on in these different spaces where teachers have uh, like decided or defined their work as learning through play. We want to know what that means to them. We also are looking across different modes. So we're thinking about it in the frame of green screen or machine um, and everything in between or in the French, it'd be <laughs> enviro, techno, bricolo, et tout ce qui est socio. So, you know, this provides an open, like what does outdoor learning, like learning through play look like? How do you integrate in that into the classroom? It's not just recess. Um, how do you do that when you have a, an exam um, at the end of the year? Uh, what new innovations are these teachers doing around machine, robotics, makerspace, tinkering? What about the digital space? digital storytelling, um, you know, connecting with apps, doing robotics, etc. So we really get a chance to know these different elements. It's a, it's really exciting. So these schools that you have, have you identified them? Have they self-identified? They're already doing what they're doing and you are observing that? How does that work? They're already doing this work. So one of the elements we've asked for is that they at least have a year plus of experience thinking about learning through play and they want to develop these projects further. So we're, we're, we want to see how they, they came to this, uh, this understanding and, and how they do the work despite the constraints, especially considering there's been a pandemic, um, in their, in their realities. Um, and what they're going to self identify by applying. So we are, it's a small network at the beginning. It'll be about 40 schools. So six or seven per province and the I'm imagining that the projects are going to look really different across these different places, but we're going to set up coaching options for, you know, so different school teams can coach one another. Um, it's all about seeing what's there and helping them do more of this good work. Um, and they'll have some funding and also some that much coveted like release time, right? Time mm -hmm. to think, um, thinking about their own individual projects, who can help them in the experience space um, to do it even more. Um, it will be pairing them up with some of some leading experts in the field and just really trying to see what they need and respond to those needs. Fantastic. And is there anything else about that project that either you're excited about or that you want to share or that is already happening or might be happening? There's so many um, elements, but I, we've got a new website. So please check us out on playjouet.ca. Um, and that's a great chance it's to see what's happening. a lot of rhyme. We, we <laughs> like the rhyme, I guess. Yes. Um, and, you know, we'll be posting a lot of the updates, so sharing what's happening across these spaces. And again, it'll be really exciting to see what our next phase can be. And really nice to be investigating something that is exciting, innovative, oh. joyful, um, and playful. having hopefully those positive outcomes playful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I, I have to say that my work working with mentor coaches has always been that way too. 
it's amazing coming into a room with people who are really passionate about the work they do, supporting others, and, you know, just talking together about their passion for education and, and what they can do for students and for their colleagues and what they learn from their students and their colleagues as well. So I, I like to surround myself in spaces where there is a there is that that sense of positivity because we do have a lot of negativity in the world and uh, in social medias perhaps and so it's nice to to remember that there's so many people that are doing incredible work and if I can help profile it support it champion it and um, help them do more of that then I think that that'll be a job well done for me. And if I circle back around to Pracademia, which we sort of started with, I think part of what possibly drives both of us in doing these sort of strange often unpaid things, uh, a variety of things, is that there's a sense of joy in it or there's a sense of nourishment for us. Uh, I mean, this podcast is one of those things that I just get something out of myself and therefore it sort of self-populates. For sure, for sure. And it's, I think we're we're agents, right? So every time I do take on different things that may not be in exactly the realm or paid I make those choices myself and so I, I try to remember like so what is it I'm obviously gaining a lot from this and I feel like I've, I've gained so much from learning with and from so many um, people I feel very lucky uh, to have had these opportunities. Excellent well we're coming to the end of our time together and so I'm going to move us to the final five questions of what I like to call the enlightening round. I like it. So the first question is, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? Well, they may not know. I have a total penchant for teen dramas that have excellent music and fashion, questionable dialogue, um, and often binge watch these um, these shows, uh, yeah, all by myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one else will watch them with you. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> can you give me an example of one of these shows? Oh, my what's goodness. In your, what's in your top five or your bottom well, five, depending uh, on how you rank them? I like, I've just watched the Nancy Drew series. I watch A Gossip Girl, uh, Pretty Little Liars, you name it. All of those uh, types of shows, really. <laughs> Candy floss yeah. for the brain when you, you need love, a break I love from it. life. <laughs> and yeah. how about something, Krista, that is currently on your desk? Stacks and stacks of paper but also candles to remind me sometimes. Calm down, just relax. (laughs) Just don't want the candles and the paper to to cross one another. No, that would be not great, yeah. Paper for work, candles for (laughs) relaxation. Yeah, while doing work. (laughs) Yeah, that balancing is going really well, I can see. Yeah, you know, just keep purchasing another candle and that'll solve (laughs) everything. (laughs) And how about someone who inspires you in the work that you do? I'm going to I'm going to give two names if that's okay. But really Brené Brown, I love her work and the relational that, you know, that's okay to be in that space. Um it has value um and uh, people are talking about it. And I also love Meg Wheatley's work again, this idea of humanity at the core and thinking about what that means. Um and and then also how we can talk about it from a research and practice perspective. That so those two authors really drawing together some of those things you've said are really important to you. relationality, humanity, permission to engage with those things and to bring practice and research together. Yep, and listening at the core, right? How we are, it's that humanity way of being. Mm. Uh, So we've talked about quite a lot of things that you're excited about that are coming up, but is there anything that you haven't mentioned that you have coming up that you're, or something you want to talk about further that you're excited about? Well, professionally, really, I had like this Canadian Playful Schools Network is on my mind right now. So that is definitely something I'm excited. I'm excited about the new chapter that we're going to be writing together on um, Pracademia 
as well that Paul is leading. Um, and so continuing the discussion around procademia, uh, I think, is something I'm quite excited to continue to, to uh, wrestle with as a, as a term and an identity. Mm. And it is interesting because it's not a new term. It's something that's been around for a while, but we have been, I suppose, trying to make some more sense of it and bring it into higher clarity or uh, something that might be able to be usable theoretically, perhaps that it hasn't had yet or had before. Absolutely. And I mean, it's not without its resistance as well. So, you know, I love that, the tension, you know, the why, why does this matter? Why do we keep thinking about it? And why does it resonate for people? Um, it does. So why is that? Let's keep thinking about that. Yeah. And I think that's partly what has snowballed it a little bit is that we, we sort of experimented with it a little bit, presented about it, and then it sort of became something that others were very interested in and were uh, encouraging us to continue. And so we've, we've sort of have, and um, yeah, it, it is continuing. It is. Yes. So my final question is that if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would like to leave listeners with? Well, I have a lot of resources, but I thought I would leave with a thought if that is okay. And I, and I really have been thinking a lot about what it, does it mean to lead with integrity? So that way of being that humanity um, and in the work that we do. So leading and teaching with integrity, um, I think, is at the heart of really the work I'd like to do. So I'm thinking about it from a self perspective and I hope that it, it lands with some people to think about what what does that really mean um, and what does it look like and how do we do more of leading and teaching with integrity. I would love to leave it there. I kind of want you to answer a little bit. <laughs> have you, I mean, you're thinking about it, but have you oh. had some thoughts about what that might mean and is it is it linked into those ideas about teacher agency and autonomy uh, and that leading with integrity only comes with that or is it about like an ethical or a moral purpose? Have you had all some thoughts about All of the above, about? sure, yeah. And I, I think about it across all of the different workspaces that I'm in, you know, working with others, the purpose, and so making sure that our actions match the what we talk about and like how we are with people and how we are with ourselves. Um, and what do you do when the, there's a lack of alignment What's your next step? Mm. So that like that being in that space of integrity to help you make the decisions that you need when you're working with your students as a teacher, when you're working with your colleagues as a leader, leading a school system. Yeah. So how, how does that, how does it earn the value? And when I see someone doing it amazingly, it just really takes my breath away. And I think, how can I learn more from this person? Um, mm. And Yep, constant learning and growing, Deb, learning and growing. And that real alignment, which is a word that you've used earlier in the conversation, purpose, values, behaviour, talk, all of that kind of fitting in together as one. Yep. Well, thank you, Trista, so much for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure um, and I feel really honoured to be invited. So thanks. It's a pleasure. Great to have you. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.